As Helen said, we are concluding a sermon series called God Gives Us Eyes to See. And through this series, we talked about vision that God shares with us for ourselves, shares with us for others in our lives, shares for the church. And today we're going to talk about community, which does overlap with the church a lot, but community can be a lot of different things. Um, we're going to look at some lessons from the Bible about, that are about doing community well, that are about being a healthy community. And we believe that's super duper important here at Pack City, and it's something we always want to strive for. Uh, by the way, coincidentally, there's an event right after the service today about one of the new ministries we're launching next month called, you guessed it, Pack City Community. So would you come and hang out with us for some chips and dips and a short time of just hearing a little bit more about why this is important to us, why we're being intentional about creating opportunities for deep and healthy community among all the cool things that God is doing here. And I just want to let you know that I made a dip for this that my family affectionately refers to as the best dip in the world. So if you want that and you're not dairy intolerant because it does include cream cheese, please come out. There's also salsas and other things for you to enjoy, I promise. Um, as I said a minute ago, community can be a ton of different things. It can be family, it can be friends, it can be the people who live behind your apartment through the alleyway. It could be a knitting club or a poker game that you regularly play in. It could be much bigger than that. It could be a community could be like everyone who adheres to a, to a certain belief system, like Christianity, for example. Communities form around so many different things. It could be affinity, mutual interest, identity. Now, as humans created by God, we were made for relationship and made for community. But in our broken world, that really good God-given thing can be elusive, at least in a healthy way. Communities can be super beneficial to people and society, but they can also do a lot of damage. And I would argue that communities, as people form them, skew a little bit toward exclusivity. People like very clear definition, strong boundaries with strong rules for inclusion. And to maintain a community like that requires control. It requires enforcement of the rules. And when you have a community so structured like that, it doesn't take much to upset the status quo. So I think that we have to think about what is the purpose of, of a community. How does it run? What makes it tick? Without clarity, things can go wrong. Like there was a news story recently about Google. Google is a giant tech company, but they also had this idealistic idea that their internal message boards would form community among their employees. But with cross-purposes, making computery things and creating community, they didn't really have a clear way to manage these internal message boards. And a lot of harassment and hostility happened in them, and they basically had to shut them down. They decided, we'll just be a giant tech company that makes some computery things. That's all I know about Google. Like, seriously. <laughs> I am not a tech person. Now, last week we talked about the church and God's vision for the church and us as members of it. Community of believers, Jesus followers. And Chris spoke about some of the best ways the church blesses people both inside and out. And I want to ask us, how do we function as that community? as a community of Jesus followers. And I think it's important to know how we do that because God has really good ideas about how we function that can apply to all the other communities in our lives. You know, we might be familiar with the, the golden rule or the greatest commandment, which is about loving God, but loving your neighbor as yourself. 
How can you love your neighbor if you don't know your own value, if you don't know how you're loved? And I think the church and what we can learn from the church about community is a good way to learn how we can love ourselves and share that love beyond. The church is maybe the strangest community of all. So a lot of people would argue that the church is the most exclusive because there's really one way in, and that's Jesus. But a lot of people would argue that the church is the least exclusive because everyone's welcome. Literally everyone can join. There's a famous quote from Archbishop William Temple. The church is the only institution that exists primarily for the benefit of those who are not its members. So one of our purposes is to share the good news of what we found in Jesus with others who don't know it yet. But I would argue that's not the entire purpose. The church does have purpose for those who are apart, and that's to help us grow up. You see, in Jesus' ministry, death, and resurrection, he brought the kingdom of heaven, this whole new, restored way of life, to earth. And in him, as we join that, we have renewed identity, which means basically when we join that, we're like babies. We don't know what the heck we're doing. We need to learn a lot, and we do that by learning from each other, by people who are maybe a few steps ahead or far ahead of us in this growth, in their new identity. Now, we do that, of course, in the world. We have a new identity surrounded by the old way of life and competing messages around us and even within ourselves. Now, even those who've really grown up and matured in faith don't always know what they're doing, but that's by design. See, we're supposed to live as Jesus lived, but what Jesus said about how he lived is that he always just did what the Father told him to do, what the Father was up to. So it's like, okay, if we do this thing called church without knowing what we're doing, because we're not supposed to. We're supposed to be active in relationship with God, which means there's not a lot of clear rules. It's really kind of weird and very different from so much else. Jesus also describes the kingdom community in some really weird ways, like the least is greatest, the first shall be last, the last shall be first. The most humble and childlike ones are celebrated the most, not the strong opinionated leader types. Well, at least that's kind of what was meant, but we as a church are also a community that fails at least as much as we succeed. We're always kind of getting it wrong because we're all learning together. We kind of learn by doing, learn from our mistakes We make mistakes as individuals, as a group, but God keeps showing up to his people and he keeps pouring out his love and leading us anyway. So in spite of all the reasons it shouldn't work, God has this incredible vision for us. As Jesus prayed before he was crucified, he prayed that all who believe would be unified so that the world would see God's love because of how we love each other. How does that work though? How does this thing still exist and grow 2,000 years later? And the answer, which is very much about how we can do community well, both inside the church and out, is God's grace. The grace of God means we're invited to be part of his community of believers through no effort or means of our own. It levels the playing field. It means anyone can be a part. No one has to earn their way in. Grace is the great equalizer. And because we can accept that and become a part without being fully grown up yet in this new way of life, it means God just wants us. He wants us with all our imperfections. And we have to ask ourselves, do we want each other that way too? If doing things God's way involves extending grace to others, it's a good question to ask. Like, are we getting it right? And if you feel like the answer is no, that's okay. 
you're not alone. The church in an ancient Roman city called Colossae, which is in modern-day Turkey, in the first century, was getting it wrong. It was a group of new believers, a new church had formed, and they did this very human thing as they gathered as a community of believers. They started controlling their community by adding rules, making it more exclusive, making membership and partnership and participation about certain worship activities that Jesus never talked about. Inclusion was based on works, not faith. There wasn't grace any longer in this community, or at least not enough of it. They let these earthly things, these very human things, define them, and it was hurting people, and the community was breaking apart. And so there's this book in the Bible called Colossians, which is a letter the Apostle Paul wrote to this church. He wrote it to correct the mistakes they were making that were changing their community and warping it so it wasn't based on grace anymore. And he wanted to encourage them to engage with God's grace in all they did. And I think we can learn a lot about God's vision for community in that book. And that vision can be applied to community, whether it's God-centered or not. So before we dive in, will you please pray with me? Lord, help us know your love for us and what you intend for community and how your grace can be at the center of that and should be at the center of that. Thank you for your grace for all the ways we don't know and that we get it wrong. But keep leading us, Lord. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to dive into Colossians chapter 3. And would you read along with me the first 11 verses? So since then, this is Paul writing, You have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways, in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free, but Christ is all and is in all. So in the first couple of chapters, Paul had been directly addressing these new rules and stipulations that this church had put on membership. And he's reminding them now that their identity is in God. It's not in the way society divides itself, Gentile or Jew, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. But if salvation is by works, as these human divisions would say they are, what are the ways are you acting that are self-centered? And he dives in on that. He first talks about idolatry. This is the, kind of the first category, I would say, of things that prevent or divide healthy community. And idolatry is all about the self. It's about self-centered ambition. So if you're worshiping money, if that's the idol that you're seeking, money isn't a thing that responds to you like God is. If you're working for money, making that the center of your life, you're working for yourself. Whether it's money, the idolatry of sexual immorality, evil desires, all of these idols are about using people, resources, exerting power over others for yourself. So idolatry is ultimately self-centered ambition. Next, he points out some other behaviors that hurt other people. Offenses that put people down. Anger, rage, malice, slander. 
the thing about putting people down is that it's all relative. It's about building yourself up at their expense. For whatever reason that you have anger with this other person, it's, if you exert that, it's like saying the other person is less valuable than you. And these behaviors of offense are all about self-importance. And finally, lying. Lies are almost always, I would argue, about shame. Now, if you're lying because you're throwing a surprise party for somebody, that's okay. That's not about shame. Anyone? Anyone? Okay. Um, but not wanting or willing to be honest may not even feel like shame. It may feel like a power move, that you're lying to somebody. But underneath a lie is a desire to hide, for some reason, out of self-preservation. All of these behaviors create division in community. They're about using people, putting people down, shoving them away. It's all about self, self, self at the expense of community. The good news is, Paul continues in verses 12 through 14. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. So now Paul's getting into the good stuff. How healthy community can be promoted and restored. And of course, the umbrella over all this he talks about is love. Those bad behaviors are about self-centered ambition, but love is about other-centered ambition. As God is so generous with us, we can be generous toward others. I love the idea of patience. Patience is a way to listen to others slowly, really getting to know them. People aren't just what they provide for you. They're valuable unto themselves. Each one's story and life is important. That's what grace tells us. Everyone's story is important. We can encourage, encourage each other in vision, as we discussed over the last two weeks this way, by really knowing what people's lives are about, how God might be calling them to things. If we get to know each other with compassion, humility, gentleness, we can love better. I can play a part in being ambitious for my friends rather than for myself. Then Paul moves on to talking about bearing with each other. And I love this. This is really good stuff because this is super countercultural. Community that holds you together during hard times is truly a gift. But self-interested people, they don't stick around when it gets hard. They don't stick around to help relieve your burden. But true and lasting community is marked by a willingness to carry the weight for each other. The weight of grief, the weight of pain, of trying and failing in life of just not knowing what life is about, uncertainty. These are heavy things that people walk with, and we can help each other with that. This is about other preservation rather than self-preservation, getting your friends, getting your loved ones through those hard seasons. Finally, Paul lands on forgiveness, which is probably the most obvious of all. It's why God sent Jesus to the earth, Jesus talks about it a lot, so does pretty much every other writer in the New Testament, because it's the most crucial. This is not about just bearing with people because of a general difficulty in their lives. This is about when there's a fence between the two of you that could break your relationship apart. But forgiveness is the choice to offer to others what God has offered to us for free. And it's not about self-importance, but instead about relational importance. It's about this relationship, this community that we share, is worth preserving 
It's worth keeping. It's worth restoring. Jesus perfectly shows us relationship matters. It's kind of the whole point of life. It's why we're, we were created by God. It's why he, God sent Jesus to save us. It's all for relationship. And loving each other, bearing with each other, forgiving each other, these fight for relationship. They are grace in action. And Paul ends this section in verses 15 through 17. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you are called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to, the God, to God the Father through him. Paul is encouraging this community to love each other and to point each other to the truth, to keep teaching and admonishing each other back to the center of the gospel, which is grace, not the other things they had been teaching. Through mutual encouragement, we're seeking the best for each other. And why? Because grace. None of us have earned it. None of us deserve it. But God gives it to us all, and we're supposed to be a part of sharing that with each other. If I am a person that God, is, that God loves, I can look at each one of you and know the same is true. That's what grace tells me. You and I can live this new life together. We need to grow alongside each other, especially as the broken world around us and all of its mixed messages make it really hard. Like the Colossians, we are all torn between choices. On the one hand, we have our worldly desires our desire to control community that we have, to be to make community about selfishness and just what we want, defining it however way we like best. On the other hand, we have God's way of doing things by love and grace. And to be full participants in community like that, to be givers and enactors of God's grace, we have to be receivers of it too. So that requires a step, like a big step in humility which is acknowledging our need. Grace isn't just some one-time thing, some prayer you prayed 12 years ago or two years ago or whatever. Grace is the way into this community, but it's also the way on in growing in this life. And the key to do this is to remain open to community. Of all the sins that Paul listed in the earlier part of the passage, I would say lying and hiddenness is maybe the most dangerous because whatever else we're doing in our lives that is destructive, if we can hide it and avoid dealing with it, we'll never grow beyond it. We'll never see freedom from it or move toward others in community. The disciple John writes about this in one of the books of the New Testament, 1 John, in chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. He says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So the trick is to talk about grace and participating in healthy community in the most practical of ways. We need to talk about confession. Now, the history of the church, and I would argue a lot of movies and television, have trained us to think that confession is something that happens in a big Catholic or Anglican church. It's made of big, beautiful gray stone, and you do it in a small booth off to the side, and there's a priest sitting through a tiny little window that you're talking to. The confession is something that all believers are called to do. 
and to not do alone. Confession isn't something that you kind of whisper quietly to God after you've picked up your communion and you're walking down the side aisle and everyone's singing really loudly so nobody can hear you say it. The disciple James says in his book in the New Testament, chapter 5, verse 16, Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. It is so important to be willing to confess our sins and to share our struggles and our burdens. Hiddenness, lies, will only lead to further shame and further distance from community. If we're unwilling to rely on community, we'll be left on our own to our self-devices, our self-preservation, our self-centered ambition, self-importance, just by ourselves. In the extreme, I would say that can mean one of two things. We can run from healthy community and simply find a community that affirms our destructive behaviors. Or we can remain among healthy community and put on a mask and play the good person role never really letting anyone into our lives. And that really leads to just kind of a half-life of shallow, unsatisfying connection, which you don't really think is sustainable. You're either going to break and call out to somebody for help, or you're going to leave. In the most dire cases, choosing a life of self-satisfaction, depending on what behaviors you do that with, can lead to death. But the good news is that confession and forgiveness leads to life. To confess to safe and trusted friends and other people in your lives means you're going to experience the grace of God in a really tangible way. There are a few things so powerful as admitting what's going wrong in your life, what you're doing wrong, and seeing a face look back at you, not with judgment and scorn, but with compassion. When we do that, we're reminded we're a part of something. We're a part of this community and we have purpose in it. If we choose to confess, if we take that bold step, we also offer others the chance to bear with us in our challenges and struggles. We begin living the life free of burden of secrecy and shame. This is the power of a community of grace. You might ask, well, how am I supposed to confess and to whom? Our dream for Pac City is that as we grow as a community, there will be relationships that just naturally form in the community groups and elsewhere that are intentional friendships, accountability groups, prayer partnerships. To make those happen, you know, it takes intentionality and bravery on everyone's part. In the meantime, our prayer team is trained to pray for you and is trustworthy and observant of healthy boundaries, as are our community group leaders. I'm one of them. But when you choose to confess, it can actually look super duper simple. In a ministry I was a part of for many years, I learned the simple model of a prayer for forgiveness. And the first step is if you're the person asking, asking for con, to make a confession, just say what it is. Say, I've sinned by, and fill in the blank. It's not story time. You don't need to make excuses. You just want to put it out there so God can do his business and take care of it. And if you're the person receiving a confession and praying for somebody, all you have to do at step one is not do this. (gasps) Seriously, just listen with a, a grace face. Step two, I would say, is that you can bind the sin away and give it to Jesus on the cross. Now, this might sound a little weird, but there's a part in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 18 where Jesus, in the NIV version of the Bible, the heading is how to deal with sin in community or in the church. And Jesus says in verse 18, 
Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. To declare that you're binding sin away is not some weird magic thing. It's just agreeing with words spoken out loud with what's happening in a spiritual realm that God is doing when somebody confesses and you forgive them. And step three, just say you're forgiven in the name of Jesus. It's done. And finish with praying a cleansing or a blessing prayer. A lot of times, if we hold sin in for a super-duper long time, it's compounded with shame. And it can make us feel ugly even just to admit it. But we are reminded many times throughout Scripture that we are made clean when we confess and God forgives us. And that can feel really profound to people. Sometimes it's worth having just some water there to like wash somebody's hands as a symbol of what God is doing in the spiritual realm. And finish with a prayer of blessing. Like we're reinvited every time we confess into our new identity, into renewal that God has for us. And as the person praying for that, we can bless them with however God sees fit. It's good to wait on the Holy Spirit and say, God, how do you really see this person? How do you love them? Maybe your prayer is to a, a prayer for encouragement to right some wrongs, to make restitution for ways that you failed and hurt other people. Again, none of this is magic. It's just a simple model, a few words to agree with what's happening when you confess, as the Bible tells us to, to each other. We're not simply restored to relationship with God when we do this also. This is about kind of symbolically walking out of the tomb from death and darkness to light and life. That's a journey that Jesus made. We get to know him a little better by doing that. Now, he paid the ultimate price for our sins so that we don't have to endure quite as much. We endure much less. Now, still, confession can be really awkward and embarrassing. It involves a death to our pride. But Jesus went to the cross so that we could pursue relationship on the other side of that with him. And in relationship and community, we have the opportunity for perpetual renewal. And we see that in the book of Colossians. So Paul didn't write to the Colossians and say, you failed, you're out. No, he wrote with a reminder of God's continually offered grace that they should put into action among themselves in hopes that it would become the center of their community, the engine that kept things running toward unity and love. Now that's our hope for Pax City. As we're coming up on an exciting thing, we're having launch day 2019, we're celebrating our first anniversary, we're growing the ministry offerings that we have for people. But in all of it, we want to see relationships here continue to grow to be deeply rooted in God's grace, trusting and open and bearing with one another. And we also want to point each other, as we've talked about this whole series, toward the vision that God has for us, toward what he's doing and will continue to do through our community. And I just want to start by making a confession of my own to all of you. You know, we're coming up on a year in this new church. It was new to me, and I'm scared of change and new things. And I let all these new faces keep me from really opening myself up. I let shame keep me closed off from a lot of people. But I've been encouraged by Chris and some other people here to allow myself to become better known. That's my goal for myself in this season ahead. I hope you'll consider what goal you might have as, this, as a part of this community. But please, hold me accountable. Say, Patrick, stop being so cut off. I don't think I've been super cut off, but I know I can do better with God's grace and courage. So I'm going to finish uh, by saying, and while I do, I'll invite the band to come back up. 
I believe these lessons for the church and church community are valuable and worthwhile for any kind of community. I'm not saying that you need to institute the sacrament of confession in your knitting club or your poker game. But if any community is healthy and good or has potential to be healthy and good, that community is worth fighting for. It's worth preserving with simple actions of forgiveness, openness, bearing with, grace for each other. What if forgiveness and grace were introduced to more communities simply by those who've received them from God being a part of those other communities? Could more people experience the love of God that way and want to know more of him? The world would not just see the love of God in the unity of the church, which is what Jesus prayed for, but they'd also be able to taste and see a little bit for themselves wherever Jesus' followers go in life. Let's be a part of of that by receiving God's grace as often as we need to so that it overflows into our lives outside the church. That's my prayer for us. And speaking of prayer, we're going to have a time of ministry as we close with one more song up here at the front. The space is open and our prayer team can come up to pray for you. But a couple things that we prayed for before the service and felt like God was doing is... God wants to, like, break down some walls. There may be people here who haven't heard his voice in a really long time. And he's ready to, like, clear some stuff out and speak to you.